right, guys, welcome back to the It's Not Just a Game podcast. I'm your host, Chrissy Sanders. Um, today, we have a really special guest. We're talking to the David Berry, just like the Ohio State University, because he's super ultra famous and super important. Um, but before we talk to him, we just a friendly reminder, uh, if you enjoy the content that we bring, make sure that you subscribe and review the podcast. And if you leave a review, make sure that you also um, leave a little bit about your business uh, because I'll read it out on online or on air so that people can um, hear exactly what your business is. I appreciate you guys supporting the podcast. So I want to support you guys by, you know, talking about your business for everybody else to hear, uh, which is a free commercial. You don't have to pay me to do that. Okay. So now that we brought up those free housekeeping things, just want to talk to David. David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, all right, guys, if you don't know who David Barry is, um, you're, you're probably sleeping up under a Twitter rock nine times out of 10. Um, he is a very, very accomplished sports economist and professor of economics at the Southern University, the Southern Utah University. Sorry about that. Um, and he's the past president of the North American Sports Economist and a member of the editorial board of the Journal of Sports Economist and the International Journal of Sport Finance. He is the author of Wage Wages of Wins. Uh, he's also the author of Stumbling on Wins. Uh, he is the inventor of the wins produce method, which we're going to get into. Um, and he is a huge advocate for women's sports, which I absolutely love. And just he's a huge advocate for women in general. So what's going on, David? I guess apparently a lot. To? That's a lot of stuff. I guess I've been doing you a lot of stuff. have been doing a lot. So, yeah. You've been busy left nebraska west yeah, university it's, it's, it's yeah it's been <laughs> just... it's been it's been a little weird that's true yeah that's yeah I, so nebraska west that was uh 1991 so that was when you were born right yeah that was when i was born i also forgot to say that too like we were born like a day true, apart that's true. which is yeah. a couple of years but 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 not not a, not <laughs> a year apart we, really... we were born very some years so <laughs> Just a little bit. Just a little bit. I'm one life up on you, I think. So. So when you so when you were at Nebraska Wesleyan, were you thinking that hey, I'm going to become a, a sports economist no. and I'm going? No. No. <laughs> so no. That is not what I was thinking original. at all. Uh, I, I, in fact, I wasn't thinking at all because I was when I graduated, I was 21. Um, I. No, I, I, uh, my route uh, has been uh, mostly random. Um, I, I, when I was graduating in 1991, I knew I didn't want to get a job. I knew that. And um, so I decided to go to graduate school, uh, even though I wasn't really that great of a student. Um, and I went to Colorado State. And then I fell into sports economics because uh, I was – finishing up my second year and they said that you can get a master's uh, in economics if you pass uh, two exams. I wasn't sure I could do that. Uh, and then they said, well, you could write a thesis, which would be original research. And I'm like, not sure I can do that either. And then they, said, um, they said, well, you could write a paper, like a technical paper of some kind, um, where you sort of go in depth on some particular topic. 
Um, and if you do that and you take another class, then we'll give you a master's. And, uh, and so I was like looking mm. for a topic and uh, I came across a footnote in, an, in a textbook that said that you can measure the economic value of a baseball player with uh, statistics. And I didn't know you could apply economics to sports. But when I saw that, I was like, that I can do. I bet I could do that. And so I wrote this paper on, on, on baseball. And then when I got done with that, I was like, you know what? I bet you could do that for basketball. And I bet you could do other things. And so I started looking at basketball and other sports. Uh, and it turns out that a lot of economists don't want to study sports. They, they're not very into that. They don't take it very seriously. Uh, and that left it wide open to people like me and, and some other people uh, to start doing studies using sports data. Um, so so why, why didn't you think that people wanted to do A lot of economists you know, think that even. that's not serious. Uh, they're wrong, but that's what they think. So they think that if, I'll give you an example sort of from my own career. Um, I, I've been published in, in some of the top journals in economics, but I've also been rejected by a lot of top journals in economics. Um, I wrote a paper once looking at, at the impact coaches have on, on player performance, and that's a really important economic topic. So what exactly, what exactly does a manager do, and can a manager actually transform the productivity of a worker? And to study that outside of sports would be, would be difficult. Um, so I, I looked, I, I collected data on basketball. We wrote a paper looking at this and I submitted it to a, a top labor economics journal. And they told me that they did not think that they would, they, they didn't review the paper. They just said, we're not going to publish something like that in our journal. Cause that's about sports. Um, that same journal published mm -hmm. a very similar study looking at the impact of managers on productivity. But the study that that other author did was they collected data from I think it was a Tyson chicken plant and they looked at how managers affect chicken workers. So apparently managers impact on workers. When you look at chickens, that's really interesting to economists. But when you look at the NBA, not as interesting. And I think that kind of summarizes economics for me. Cause that's like, that's insane <laughs> to me that the chicken thing. Yeah. We're all over the chicken thing. That's what we want. Chickens. Give me some stuff on chickens. Well, I think like to a degree, I think that like no offense to, you know, economists and a lot of people who are very academic oriented, a lot of people are invested in making things more complicated than it is. So I think a lot of times like the more kind of obscure, random it is, like it kind of comes off like it's well, a I, I get the sense from economists that. If they think that you had a good time writing the paper, that you enjoyed what you were doing, that that makes it a bad paper. They want they want to see that you suffer. Yeah. Like, wow, I can't believe you would study chickens. That sounds like incredibly boring. Boy, you must you know you must be really dedicated to research to spend hours studying chickens. You know, I mean, so so to me, I think that's part of it. I you know I, I get a lot of attention for what I do. Um, I don't get much attention inside the economics. Uh, profession itself for what I do. Uh, there are people in economics who get uh, more attention from other economic professors. Uh, I can tell you, I, I don't know what, what research they do, and, it's not the, and what I've seen is not often not very interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, I spend a good deal listening to Bloomberg. I spend like a lot of my time doing that, and um, I will have to say you are the most interesting 
economists I've yeah. ever met they're and not, talked they're to. They're not a fast um, group of people. They're usually <laughs> not very personable yeah. and, you know, very interesting yeah, metrics they, they, that they, they have find. Issues. To- I, I, once, I, I have a reputation among, among sports economists of being a somewhat entertaining um, presenter of research. Um, a few years back, I presented a paper at a meeting and I sat down next to a friend of mine. And this was his response when I sat down. He goes, well, I don't think that was funny at all. That was just a paper. I said, what, do they all have to be funny? I can't just do a paper? What, what am I, a right. monkey? What is that? What, what's up with that? <laughs> he goes, well, usually you're entertaining. And I, I was hoping something would be funny, and it wasn't. I could do. I could just do a paper. You know? I know how to do that, too. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it is the case that that for a lot of economists, they they have they have trouble with that. That that's that's something that they have they have trouble seeing how to take what we do in economics and make it interesting to someone who's not in economics. To me, if you're going to do research and you're gonna you're gonna try to figure out how the world works, you should try to investigate topics that other human beings would find interesting. Um, and if you aren't doing that, then I'm not sure why you're doing the research, because what's if all you're doing is talking to a handful of other economists, I'm not sure there's a lot of point to that. Right. Exactly. And that's one of the biggest things that they even taught us in journalism, which is is probably a little bit less uh, intellectual than um, <laughs> economics. But uh, if if a, a six year old can't understand it you know, then don't write it. And I think like uh, that's super important when it comes as when it comes down to messaging nowadays, um, especially since information and content is so readily available for everybody now, you need to be able to um, kind of speak to multiple exactly. cons- constituents, you know, and, and, and your work doesn't really have any bearing on anything if, if you can't talk to people. So you're sitting here and all right, you write this paper, and did, so when you wrote this paper, did you like immediately get addicted to it or and you were like, I really I really like this, like because you went on to do the Ph.D. in it and academia is is a real big hustle. So like, I mean, like, so, you know, did you get addicted to well, it? Well, the way it sort happen? of started you is, know? you know, I wrote that paper. I started doing research on sports. Well, my dissertation is actually in international trade. Because uh, I didn't think I could get a job doing sports research, so I did a I did a study of international trade, which was not tremendously interesting. Uh, but I did I did I did get it done, um, and and then I went off to Iowa. So I got a, my first job was at a small school in Iowa, and I started doing research. And my main co-author uh, for the first part of my career was a, a guy named Martin Schmidt, and Martin and I both went to Colorado State together, um, and we started writing papers together, uh, and. Basically, we had an advantage in doing research because Colorado State is not an Ivy League school. It's not one of the top economic programs out there. So we didn't have a lot of exposure to researchers, uh, which meant that we didn't have anyone telling us what we couldn't do. Uh, So we started writing papers Mm -hmm. about things that we thought were interesting. um, And we just started writing them and sending them off to journals and just seeing what would happen. And it turns out they started publishing them. Mm. Um, and so much to our surprise, uh, and, and that's what we did. So we sort of just started doing that, uh, and just started writing. And then, then as you start writing papers and it's like anything, once you start doing something and you start learning the craft of what you're doing, you get better and better at it. 
So this is something that I think uh, mm -hmm. makes a, a lot of academics have trouble with is that um, most academics don't write that many papers in their career. Um, they get discouraged very quickly early on. Uh, and that's because the first few papers anyone writes are probably not, not particularly great. Um, and so they just get discouraged and frustrated and they just get to thinking they can't do this. Um, we didn't have that feeling because nobody thought we could do it. There was no one commenting on whether we could do it or not. Um, and so we just started doing it. And then after you do, you know, 10, 20 papers or so, you start to go, oh, I, you know, I, I think I know how all of these kind of go together. Um, and so now at this point, I've written 70 academic papers and I have about 20 papers in progress wow. right now with co-authors all over the world. Um, people come to me with ideas and, you know, do you want to work on this? Can you help me with this? Uh, and now I could, you know, I can pick up a paper and see pretty quickly, you know, where, where it should go, where the story is. I, I liken it a lot to if you were a songwriter. And you sort of started out your career mm -hmm. and you're writing songs that the first few songs that you write are probably not that great. You don't really know what you're doing. Um, but I would imagine that after you've written, you know, a whole bunch of songs. So if you're somebody like, you know, Dolly Parton's written a lot of songs or Barry Gibb with the Bee Gees or Paul McCartney or whatever, you, you know, people who've written, you know, lots and lots of music. At some point, they get to a point where they could probably write a song, you know, in a few minutes because they know you know, give me an idea, I'll give you a song because they know how to, it all goes together and they get really, really good at it. And they can also, if somebody were to present a song to them, they could listen to it and go, okay, I see what you're trying to do, but it would work better if you did it this way. And they would instantly see that because they have so much experience. Right. You know, same thing also if you're, if you're somebody who makes movies or, or television shows, you know, you think about how quickly uh, people turn around um, television shows, uh, you know, if, if you think about a, a typical sitcom or a typical drama and how many hours of television is in a season and you compare that to one movie, which is two and a half hours, you know, a season of television is a lot of material. How do they do that so quickly? How do you come up it with is. that many plot lines? Um, they have they have tons of experience. And so they can say, OK, I think I you know, if the character goes in this direction, I think we can do that and we can do that arc for a few episodes and that'll make sense. And then we'll take them this way. And you can you sort of see how it all goes together. Somebody who is just starting out would look at that and go, that sounds like an immensely unsolvable problem that I would have to write out 22 hours of material in a span of, you know, three months. Um, yeah. I think that's so important what you're saying right now, because even though like, you know, you're in a very specialized field, I think that is super important because a lot of the people who listen to this podcast, they either are in the sports industry or they want to be in the sports industry. And a lot of times, like I try to tell people all the time, it's about reps. You know, it's about how many phone calls you make, how many you know emails you send, how many people that you connect with. And a lot of times it's not going to be you know, good when you first get started and you can't let that awkwardness sort of kind of like let you stop doing what you're doing. And I also thought it was really interesting when you were talking about basically like you built that program essentially because it, there was no overhead. So many people like, and you and I have had tons of conversations about it. They just lay down because, oh, I wasn't given this opportunity and I, and I, this, that, the other and privilege and this this and this but the truth be told about it is you know 
when you don't have anything to build off of, that is the greatest advantage ever because nobody's. Telling I, I, there you there what actually to do. was a study that that showed that that uh, people who go to Ivy League schools, the top people are are very productive, but once you get past the very top people, their productivity goes to zero, and it's because they're intimidated. They 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 mm-hmm. have trouble. They 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 think they don't measure up to this handful of few people out there they know. And so therefore they think, well, nothing I do will ever be useful. And it's like, no, you really shouldn't see it that way. Wow. You should see this as, you know, you, you keep working at something and you keep building up your craft. Um, and you really don't know until you have built up your craft, what you're going to be capable of doing. And so you can't judge your ability based on your first, you know, five or 10 papers that you write. Uh, it's possible those will be just awful papers. You know, first few papers I wrote were terrible, um, and and they were because I didn't know what I was doing. I, I didn't, you know, I didn't know how to how to do this. Um, but as you get more experience and you sort of you you understand, okay, this is how a study would be doing done, and this is these are the issues you have to address in writing a study. Then you you understand how to how to do it. Your your output becomes a lot higher quality. Uh, and so too many people face initial adversity and then they give up and go, I can't do that. You know, it, it's like, it's like if you showed up on American yeah. Idol and you sang a few notes and the judge said, you know, you can't sing. It's like, well, I don't know that you can judge it based on that, you know, and, and it could be that you, maybe you're right. Maybe right now I can't sing, but maybe if I worked at it and I learned the craft, you know, I would be much better at it. And so, and, and, and that's, mm-hmm. you know, and going back to sports, it's the same thing in sports, right? I mean, if you think about a baseball player, uh, when they draft a player out of high school in baseball and they stick him in rookie ball, initially, you know, they, mm-hmm. they've only hit high school pitching. So they really don't know what it's like to hit a professional pitcher. Uh, and they may struggle initially. They may, you know, eventually they're like, wait a minute, you know, once you start doing this for a while, you're going to start to pick up on things that you need to know to be successful. And right now you don't know what that pitcher is doing because you've never seen someone like that before. But after you do this a few times, you're right. going to figure it out um, and you're going to get much better at this. And you have to be patient and you have to put in the work and you have to keep trying and keep trying and keep trying. Um, and that's that, that's a really important thing for people to understand that that you have to understand um that you have to keep working at something to become successful at it you can't expect to be successful at something initially there are people who are who are phenomenally successful at a young age and that does happen but typically you do get better at things with experience yeah definitely so when you so when you were starting out and as you were going through this process were you always naturally a persistent person or did was um, that something that you I don't I don't think it's I don't think it's a case of being persistent. I think it's a case of um, I was put in an academic job. And so part of my job is teaching classes. Uh, and I teach, you know, I teach mm-hmm. um, typically six to eight classes a year. Uh, but even if you're teaching four classes in a semester, you're only in the classroom for about 12 hours a week. So you have a lot of other time that you could be doing things. And so, you know, mm-hmm. I, I would just sit in my office and work on stuff. Um, and so it's not a matter of necessarily being persistent. It's a matter of, I don't know what else to do with my time. Um, 
And, and again, when I started <laughs> back in, uh, in, in 19, so my first academic job, uh, was 1998 when, when you were seven. Um, uh, and so in 1998, <laughs> you know, there's, there's no, you don't have Netflix in your office. <laughs> so there's not a whole lot you can do. I mean, you had nothing else to do. So you'd sit at your computer and you'd write things. Um, and, and, you know, and, and that's, you know, and that's essentially what I do now, but now I, now I can watch television while I do it. Um, but you know, and you couldn't do that when you started, but, but that is, that is how you started. You started by just, you know, you, you know, I had time. Um, I remember my very first week as a, as a professor. Um, so I, I got hired at the small liberal arts school in Iowa and it's my very first week. And they, they had me teaching in the morning, which I, I don't do that anymore, but they had me teaching in the morning. And so I got to work and I, I was teaching at nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and then I would finish up in my teaching and I was done by like one o'clock in the afternoon with all my classes. Uh, I remember, I remember my very first week asking what? somebody, you know, at two or three in the afternoon, well, what, what are you supposed to do? You know, I'm, I'm done teaching at one. So what, what do you do now? And they're like, well, you can go home. And well, that doesn't seem right. I mean, I, you know, I watched my father work and when he had a job and he worked till five. So it doesn't seem like you'd go home at three. So that doesn't seem right. Did yeah. Well, you know, I, 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 I just, I, I had this idea that you were supposed to stay at work and work. So I just worked. And it turned out by doing that, you know, I was, I was producing research and doing things. Um, but, you know, it, it really was this idea I had that when you were at work, you were supposed to work, um, you know, and so, you know, now, now I, I have a, I have a fairly unique schedule. I work seven days a week. I work four or five hours a day. Um, you know, so I work 40 hours a week, but I spread it out over seven days. Uh, and I don't come in the morning anymore. I, I never did like mornings, so I don't do that. Uh, I teach all my class in the afternoon. That's impressive, though. I mean, that that's really impressive that, like, um, especially for a lot of people out here who are, you know, entrepreneurs and freelancers, because like you said, when you first started being a professor, like a lot of a lot of it, you had to kind of like regulate yeah. your own. Professor self, is you know? totally and regulating. I think a lot that's what it is. It, it's it's entirely. I have this conversation with people because there are there are people who have this idea that somehow we could create sort of an incentive system by which we could get professors to work harder or work better or something. And I told people that is not how academia works. Uh, you are self-motivated or you are not self-motivated. And you, your idea is to hire people who are self-motivated. But if you don't want to do it, um, then you'll make up any excuse in the world not to do it. Uh, and that that's just human nature. That's what people do. And giving out awards or saying, I'm going to give you extra money if you do something, it's not going to have any effect on people who don't want to do it. Either you are motivated to do this or you're not motivated to do this. And I, you know, again, going back to my analogy about songwriting, you know, it's the same thing. You can't make somebody write a top 40 hit. I mean, they, they write the songs they write um, and that's it. And, and so it's the same thing with academic research. We are professors are, are self-motivated people. So uh, if you're successful at it, it's because you, you have internal motivation to make yourself successful. Um, and so, you know, and that's, that's, that's sort of how I've done my entire career. I'm with you on that. Um, yeah, self-motivation is big for me. You you shouldn't you shouldn't need anybody to stand over your shoulder, um, because at the end of the day, you know, the more research and uh, more papers you put out and more things that you do in your career, you know, is something that you're emptying your potential. Like you know, your potential take. Um, that's just one of the biggest things for me. 
So let's talk about um, Wages of Wins. So you wrote, wrote this book um, and you were talking about wins produced. Um, and, and it's and it's a complicated book for, for like, you know, for people like it's, it's not a, the notebook. So like um, and you have a couple controversies in there. Um, like, let's talk about that book. So what made you write Wages of Wins and, you know. So this is how that came about. It's, it's uh, uh, so basically one of the things that we uncovered when I first started doing research on basketball is, and this is one of the, my, my early stories is that in economics, it was long thought. And this, the, and there are economists who still believe this, that people are perfectly rational, that people generally know what they're doing and they generally follow their incentives um, and they make the best decisions that you mm. can possibly make. Um, and so I started analyzing basketball data and it became pretty clear in analyzing that data that teams were not making optimal decisions. Um, they were overvaluing scoring and they were sure. undervaluing things that impacted wins. And so I, so I presented a paper in 2004 at an economic conference and the way this conference worked, um, is, uh, I was, I, I, the way uh, this 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 conference was set up is that there were uh, three or four papers in a session. A session lasts for two hours. There are three or four papers being presented. I was chairing the session, so I was I was making sure people were getting up and sitting down at the right time. And I was also presenting in the in the conference. So so I got up and I presented my paper, um, which was saying that people in the NBA are not rational. And I was saying it to a group of economists who generally believe that people are. So they didn't like this. Uh, the person who presented mm. after me that day, uh, spent 10 minutes arguing about my paper rather than do his own paper. Uh, and then when the sessions, when the papers had all been presented and we opened it up to questions for the audience, every single question from the audience was directed towards my paper. All the other papers were ignored. So they, so they were, they were really unhappy with this. They were mad. When right. the paper, when the <laughs> session is done, um, it was in the morning and when the morning when the session was done, uh, a woman comes up to me um, and she says, would you like to write a book about all this? And I said, well, I don't, I don't know if you noticed, but that didn't go over very well. She goes, well, they definitely were engaged. They thought it was right. really interesting. And, and, a, and a book on this would be kind of fun. And I said, so, so, so now, you know, I don't know anything about writing books. I've never done that before. So I, I, I remember this. I remember I went to lunch um, right after that with someone with, 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 you know, with some of the economists in the room. And these are all friends of mine. And I said to him, you know, uh, this Stanford university press just talked to me at that session and they asked me to write a book. Is, is that a good thing? Is that good to write a book? And this guy's look on his face was, you are so stupid to have good things happen to you. You are, you are, people are doing things for you and you're too stupid to know they're doing it for you. This is a problem. Cause he went to Princeton and I did not. Um, so, so I, I agreed to write the book, right. But I don't know how to write a book. Um, so I signed, uh, we signed the, 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 I, I asked Martin Schmidt and Stacy Brooke, two of my co-authors to help me. We, they didn't know how to write a book either. Um, and, uh, and, and so we signed the contract in, I guess, November of 2004. I got an email like three weeks later saying, will the book be ready in January? I said, what do you mean ready in January? I, I, we just signed the contract. I don't, I don't know how to write a book. They said, well, when do you think it'll be done? 
I said, well, I don't know, uh, maybe end of summer. They're like, okay, next September. We'll have a book next September. I guess. I don't know. Well, we get to the start of summer and I've only written one chapter. And I'm like, I will write a whole book this summer. So I sat in my office. At this point, I've now moved on from Iowa. I'm living in California. So I sat in my office that summer and I wrote a chapter a week on that book. So that's The Wages and Wins That You Read was written one chapter a week. Um, and got it all done, got it sent off to the publisher. Um, the original title was Games with Numbers. Uh, the publisher said that title's been used a lot by a lot of different books because you can't copyright a title. Um, and they said, come, come up with a title that's more unique. And so I'm sitting there thinking, I'm like, yeah. well, you know, what's the book about? It's about wins and salaries and wages and uh, wages of wins. How about that? So I said, I, so I emailed her, what do you think about the wages of wins as a title? And they're like, that sounds great. I said, what does it mean? I don't even know what the hell that means. What does that mean? Wages of wins? What the hell is that? Uh, and they're like, no, we should go with that. That's unique. <laughs> um, and then, you know, so we wrote it all up. And then Malcolm Gladwell somehow got a hold of it. And I don't, I don't have no idea how that happened. I don't, I don't know how he got a hold of it. Um, but he then contacted me the next year in 2006 saying he wants to write an article in New Yorker about it. And he, and he focused entirely on the Alan Iverson story, which was three pages of the book. So the story is Alan Iverson is mm. not a very productive player. And he's not. Uh, he doesn't shoot efficiently. He turns the ball over a lot. Um, he doesn't produce wins. Um, and so he focused entirely on that. And that created a whole lot of interest. The New York Times wrote about it. A bunch of other people wrote about it. Um, and so that sort of started my career in being in the media because the New York Times asked me to start writing columns for them. And then other people asked me to write for them. And so that sort of started this whole thing that I do now. Uh, but it all started because I was at a meeting and somebody said, you know, hey, this sounds kind of interesting. Why don't you write about this? Um, and I had never thought about doing that before. Um, and it also started the um, like the foundation of and I remember when it was first starting too of analytics as far as um, on ESPN and different things like that. When people started measuring player productivity and efficiency ratings and all types. Of yeah, stuff it, like definitely, that. And, it, um, it started along those lines. The, the people who do the, the stats, though, they, they learn to hate me um, because. You know, I'm a professor, so I have a lot of experience uh, doing stuff for journals. Um, and then I would and, and just explain sort of where wins produced came from. Um, so when I do research in baseball or I do research in football or other sports, I'm perfectly happy taking measures um, that people have developed, other people have developed because, you know, for instance, a lot of baseball measures make a lot of sense. Uh, but the basketball stuff. Right. Uh, I would look at basketball stuff, the stuff that was done by John Hollinger, who does player efficiency rating, or Dean Oliver, who did win shares. Um, and I would look at that and go, okay, none of that, none of that is defensible from an academic standpoint. You literally just made that up. That's not actually a measure of anything. You're just throwing numbers together and you're making up weights. Yeah. And none of that is based on any kind of empirical analysis that would stand up to any kind of scrutiny. Um, so I can't use that in my research. I can't, that, that's not defensible. I can't put that in an academic paper because I can't tell you that that actually is a player's productivity because you just made it up and made up stuff doesn't get, you should not publish wow. made up stuff. 
Um, and so I went through and I, I developed a measure that's based on how do the box score statistics relate to wins? And I wrote this up on a couple of articles, how you do this and how, you know, what is the logic behind it? And also, what is all the empirical analysis behind it? So I can tell you how much, you know, offensive rebound impacts wins or how much a, a turnover impacts wins. The problem they have with that, the, 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 the stats people is I didn't try to sell it to anybody. I just put it in a book. And I didn't want to sell it to an NBA team or, or ESPN. I said, this is the measure. You guys can use it however you wish because it's already been published on an academic outlet. So do whatever you want with it. I don't care. Um, right. Well, people who want to make a living yeah. off of this, that really doesn't work for them. Um, I'm, I'm not helping their business in the slightest mm-hmm. because why should somebody pay them when I'm just giving it away for free? So they spend a lot of time right. um, yelling about how I must be wrong. And for a while, I engaged with them and I tried to explain, no, that's not how, you know, at some point you just give up and go, you know, why don't you just believe whatever you want to believe? Um, but there's a lot of stuff in that right. analytics and, ba- and basketball, especially when you get into the plus minus stuff and the adjust, that's all just silly nonsense. Um, and you just look at it and you go, okay, none of that means anything. Um, but trying to explain that to people, this is one thing I've learned about doing Cisco analysis. Um, trying to explain why something doesn't make sense to people who have no training in statistics is a waste of time. It, they don't understand. You know, uh, give you a good example of this outside of basketball. Um, the NFL's quarterback rating goes back, you know, 50 years. Uh, it's totally made up. It's just nonsense. Right. Uh, but it's still quoted in every single NFL broadcast. You can't get rid of the damn thing. Um, and it doesn't yeah. make a difference. That it's nonsense. Mm-hmm. You see so many of those companies popping up nowadays because one of the biggest things that I'm interested in, like, you know, because I'm running an agency and I'm like, okay, how do you kind of like find an efficient way to predict success? Right. You know what I mean? Like, and you can't, you can't predict injury. You can't predict anything like that. But a lot of times, like you said, you know, it's not always the most rational thinking behind, you know, who's, who should be picked essentially, and who you should recruit. And I mean, a lot of people, you know, there's all the recruiting industry and stuff like that. And, you know, it's the sports industry has kind of like gone crazy in that regard. And like you said, there's no real data. Yeah, when you, I, I've written like, papers on the draft and the NBA know. and the NFL, the WNBA. Uh, you see the same sort of pattern every time that people focus in on issues that are not, um, that, that are not related to performance. They ignore stuff that is. So you see these systematic errors that go on. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really hard to explain to decision makers, uh, especially in the NBA and NFL, um, that they're making systematic errors and you're focusing on the wrong things. Uh, and 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 you and you mm-hmm. and I've written about it extensively, explaining where the mistakes are, and it doesn't seem to have any impact on them. They keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. Uh, and what? is when because i remember the browns were the cleveland browns you know were were one of the first teams to kind of like utilize analytics and data as far as the way they would build out the team and call the plays and all this other stuff um and and then we had uh we went i think like one in one in 32 or something like that it was wild in like two years right you know what i mean and and we ended up, you know, kind of bouncing back from that. But it's like, do you think things like that kind of make 
those. Well, football is a tremendously difficult place to do that kind of analytics. It's really hard to predict football performance. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I get the sense from the Cleveland Browns, they were way overconfident in what their data was actually telling them. Um, The data, sports data works the best in basketball. It's the best sport for analytics. Basketball players are immense, are remarkably consistent, much more so than baseball players are. Uh, LeBron James has been good every year of his really? career. So has Chris Paul. Um, and then other players like Carmelo Anthony are not good and they're, and they don't become good. Um, and so it's, and so when you're building an NBA team, you know, you could look at the Knicks roster this year and know that's a train wreck. That is not going to work. And I know this before the season started. And so then you have these decision makers going, well, you know, maybe the coach, they fire their coach because their team is awful. And you're like, there is no way in the world that team was going to be anything other than awful. There, there's no coach that was going to rescue that roster. It's a horrible roster. Uh, it's a horrible roster because you don't know how to pick the players. Uh, and, and, and you can look at those players. Right. You know what those players did in the past. And so you can sit there and say, OK, what they did in the past is pretty much who they are. They're not going to become fantastic players. They were trying in the past, and they did what they did. They're going to come to you, and they're going to try again, and they're going to have the same success they had before, which is not good, and you're going to lose. And you messed up in building your roster because you don't know what you're doing. And if you would have looked at some analytics and thought and understood what the data is telling you, you could have avoided all of that, but you didn't do that because you don't understand the analytics. Um, and so consequently, your team is horrible and you fired your coach and it's not going anywhere. And the Knicks are going to get another lottery pick and that's not going to help them either. And they're just going to keep doing this because they don't have any idea what they're doing. Uh, you know, it's interesting, you know, how, how successful the Brooklyn Nets have become in the last couple of years without any lottery picks. Uh, the Knicks keep losing and adding lottery picks and never mm-hmm. winning anything. And you're like, well, that's totally predictable because in the NBA draft, what you're doing is NBA draft is dominated by uh, you focus on the players who are on the top teams, the winning programs who scored the most points. Uh, and that just means you're taking the players mm-hmm. on the top teams who took the most shots. Well, that may or may not be the best player in the NBA. Um, and so you're adding these players right. who don't shoot efficiently. Uh, and then you're wondering, why am I not successful? Well, okay, this is not a very difficult analytical point to understand. But if the ball doesn't go in the basket, then it's not a good yeah. shot. You know, and <laughs> you shouldn't have to have someone right. explain that to you, that if, you're, if your star player is going four for 16, that didn't help. You know, <laughs> you, you, you're not you're not right. helping us because you have a finite number of shots in a game. And if one player is wasting a fifth of them, well, then you're going to lose. And it's not a matter of we didn't try hard enough right. or we didn't come together as a team. Yo, this dude over here just missed 15 shots. That kind of hurt. Don't do that. You know, or <laughs> he turned the ball over right, eight yeah. times. You mean you had eight possessions and he ended it by giving it to the other team? That wasn't helpful. Don't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're looking at that going, well, there isn't any mystery here. This isn't a puzzle. You know, you know, I can look at box score and go, yeah. this is why you suck. This is why you lost. It's it's that guy's fault. It's yeah. not it's not the team's fault, not the coach's fault. It's that particular person. You know, you know, and, and so if you mm-hmm. understand that, well then you're like, okay, then the solution is this. Either A Go to that person and say, 
uh, dude, quit doing this. Quit missing all your shots. Or B, you're fired. Th those are, <laughs> that's it. You know, yeah. that's it. Exactly. Don't sit oh, yeah. there and cue a bunch of crap about, mm -hmm. you know, we got to try a little harder. There's no trying a little harder. You know, you know. Yeah, because it's the same thing. You think about like even in, you know, corporate or whatever case may be, you look at people's closing ratios. You're not going to keep a guy or a girl there that's like, you know, they make 100 phone yeah. calls a day and they close none. You know, Either I'm, you're successful so, or you're not like, successful. I mean, that's, know, that's, that's how this works. And so yeah. when, when you look at, at – and, and so that's, you know, that's sort of the lesson of, of analytics in basketball is that – Wins in basketball are pretty simple to understand. Um, you take the ball from your opponent without them scoring. So you got to get defensive rebounds. You got to force turnovers. Uh, you keep the ball away from your opponent. So you got to you got to avoid turning the ball over. You got to get offensive rebounds. And then you got to put the ball in the basket. You got to shoot efficiently. So it's rebounds, turnovers, shooting efficiency. That's pretty much the whole game. And when you understand that that's what you're looking at when you're looking at a player, do they shoot efficiently? Do they rebound? Do they avoid turnovers? Do they create turnovers? And you understand that you're like, I can identify that this player is good. That player is bad. And I can just know it. And I don't have to, that's it. That's, right. I can go through and grade every single player and tell you who's good and who's bad. Uh, and it becomes a fairly easy problem to solve. And then when you look at a team like the Knicks that loses year after year after year, it's pretty easy to identify why they're losing. You're never acquiring any players that produce wins. And you, and that's because you don't know why wins get produced. You don't have any idea how this happens. Because what the Knicks do is they go out and they try and find highest scoring players in college, highest scoring free agents. And you're like, well, that's not going to work because that player who comes in who takes 30 shots a game is going to take those shots from your other teammates. You're not really doing anything to improve your 100%. chances of winning. You're just reallocating your shots all the time. And that's pointless. Exactly. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's super mind boggling. Like, as you're saying this, I'm literally thinking about it. And it, it makes 100% sense. So, so let me ask you. All right. So you, um, you are got famous, essentially, for talking about the NBA and the, you know, uh, rationality behind that. But, you know, you are a huge women's sports fan and, um, you know, advocate that's a you know like how did really you get question. into that how did i do that? no have you always been like super into no. women's <laughs> no <laughs> you know you would think the answer would be yes but no it was not the case um so this is sort of the story of how that kind of came about um so economics is an interesting field to teach in because in the sense that you typically don't think about your students um, going off and getting jobs per se. Uh, some of them go to graduate school, and then the other ones who don't go to graduate mm. school, you know, they go get jobs someplace, I guess. Um, and that's kind of how economics works. It's it's just a, it's a field that you, often you're teaching students, not necessarily in a major, but as a service to other disciplines, you know, who take you know economics courses. Um, and so. Uh, but I had a I had a woman come to me about I guess it was about five years ago or so, and she was ta I was talking to her. Um, she was in a couple of my classes, and she um, said that I want to I want to work in sports, and I and, and maybe sport management. Mm. And I said, well, I had I had done research in sports economics, and I'd gotten to know some professors in sport management who had, did graduate programs. I thought, you know what? I think I can help you. I think I can help you find, you know, 
find you, you know, in this area. I think I could do this for you. And I had never done that before. I had never tried to help somebody, you know, start a career. Um, and, and so I would meet with her and talk to her about sort of what she was trying to do. And I would, I would introduce her to all these different people. And then I, I was on Twitter already. And I thought, you know, this, this whole thing about networking and getting to know people and stuff like that, you know, I've never done this before, but you know, she's looking to do these things. And I know a few people, maybe I could get to know other people, you know, with do this kind of stuff. And I, so I started seeking out women on social media who were in the sport management field and in related fields. And then I just started listening to what they were saying, you know, about things, issues about gender and sports. Uh, and as I began to read mm-hmm. what they were saying and thinking about what they were saying, I was like, you know, I had not thought a lot about this before. I had not really done much research in this area. Right. Um, and I started going, you know, this is something that I think people should be talking about. And so I started doing academic research in this area. I started talking about this. I started writing for the popular press about this. Um, and that's kind of where it all sort of started is me just simply trying to listen to what people were saying um, and then acting on it. Uh, and I think you can go a lot pretty far in life by just listening to people, what they're trying to tell you. Uh, but you have to, you have to, you have to step back and do that. You have to sit and listen. And so um, that's kind of where that all started is, is I was trying to help this one student, you know, find, you know, find something. Um, and she did go on that. She's, she has a, a pretty phenomenal career that, that I, I, that sort of related to what we were trying to do. It worked out well for her. She did more than with that than I ended up doing. Uh, but that's kind of how it all started is, is me sort of trying to reach out to people on her behalf and then listening to what they were saying and then thinking about it um, and then doing research on my own. Um, and, you know, and then, so I started doing mm-hmm. research on, you know, thinking about the gender wage gap in, the, in, in, in sports. So why are women paid less? Um, and it's not obvious why women are paid less. People think, well, it's it's because men generate more revenue. Okay, well, that's partially true, but then we have to del- ask another question: Why do men earn more revenue? Well, it's not. I don't think right. it's because men's sports are better. I think it's pretty clear that what's going on here right. is that men got to go first. Men discriminated against women forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they got to build up their own professional sports leagues without any women at all. And they built up their fan bases. And that's why they make more money today. Women have not been around long enough in sports to build up the same kind of fan bases because it takes decades to do these things. And so the reason why women are paid less is because mm-hmm. they got to go second. And then not only that, it is also the case that men discriminate against women even beyond that. So women in the WNBA you know, are paid, you know, 20% of revenue instead of 50% of revenue. Um, And so we see that as well. Mm. Um, And so, you know, and then you start, you start to see discrimination in other areas. You know, why are so many men coaching, not women? Uh, You know, and and there's nothing, there's nothing about a man that would make him a better coach than a woman. Exactly. It's just, at all. it's just, and this this is, no, like, you don't you don't see you don't see women getting the no, opportunity in men's sports, you know, like at all. So I just never understood because, you know, I, I have a good friend and he's always very loud about, you know, his anti, you know, 
you know, women's sports stuff. And he's like, oh, well, you know, women shouldn't coach in the NBA and all this other stuff. But I'm like, so why should men coach in the WNBA? Why should men coach women's soccer? Like, why should men get all these different opportunities? And then, like, going back to your point, like, I like as a marketing person, people don't realize that the best product doesn't sell. The most marketed product sells. And when it comes down to men and women's sports, like men's sports is Coca-Cola. You go in the gas station, you go to Walgreens, you go everywhere and there's Coca-Cola. But that doesn't mean, you know what I mean? But women's sports is like, they make it very niche even in the uh, television deals. Like, you know, you they got it on ESPN Plus or some random thing. You know exactly. what I mean? Like Exactly. It's, and, it's and, and so that's, that's, you know, those are the things that, that, that I started looking at and talking about is that you see this this discrimination in all sorts of different areas. You know, women don't get the same marketing. Women don't women only get four percent of the sports media attention. Women don't get the same jobs. Um, women are told when it comes to coaching that the reason why you're not you're not um, why you don't get to be a head coach in the NBA is because you haven't paid your dues as assistant coach like Becky Hammond is doing. Well, the coach of the Cleveland Cavaliers never paid any dues in the slightest yeah. in the NBA. He went directly from college to the NBA. And, of course, that's working out beautifully for the Cavaliers. They're remarkably yeah. successful with this guy. Um, and, and, you know, that's – that's you know, men are given these opportunities that women are not given. And then you look at the behavior of men versus women and, and the stuff they get away with. Um, you know, there, there was the case of, of Nick Saban the other day, uh, where he doesn't get his way on a, on a call in the Auburn game and he throws a fit in the middle, you know, in the middle of the beginning of halftime, he's throwing a fit on the field and he's screaming at the referees. You just don't see women getting, you know, uh, doing things like that. Men do stuff like that and there's no consequences for them. Um, and, and you'll hear, you'll hear men say stuff like, you know, the reason why women can't coach is because they're too emotional. Well, I'm sorry. Nick Saban looked pretty damn emotional there. Um, and, and immensely irrational, uh, yeah. you know, and, you know, and so, you know, when you look at those kind of things, you're like, okay, it's pretty clear. This is not an issue that men, men are not doing these things because they're better. Men are doing these things because they're being given something that women are not being given. So there's an issue of privilege. Um, and there's an issue of, of providing opportunity. Uh, and I, I think it, it's important that men call these things out. Um, it's not good enough for women to call these things out because it, it, the men aren't often listening to women. Uh, I think men have to sit there and say, OK, you have to. And, and I think men should understand you have an incentive to do this. Because as long as it's the case that we have gender discrimination society, that means anything that men accomplish is suspect. If you're running a race, and you get a head start, then you didn't really win the race, now did you? How do you know how good you are? How do you know if you've done anything? If, if every race that you ran was tilted in your favor, mm. then you didn't do anything. And so that should say, look, I want the world to be equal yeah. so that I know that when I accomplish something, that maybe I did something. And it wasn't just because the race was tilted in my favor. Yeah. You are preaching. Oh, my God. Like, <laughs> like I'm like, oh, my goodness. That's a well, I, I think, I think men right there. That is, I think men have to think, you know, when, when, when you hear men say, you know, I don't want quotas. I don't want to have women be given opportunity, just be given jobs, because that means unqualified people will be in the job. OK, well, wait, stop for a second. Right now, we just allow you to discriminate yeah. against women all over the place. That means 
Think about that. That means that there are men right now who are not qualified who have jobs. Now, does that bother you in some way? Are you unhappy about that? Exactly. Mr. I don't want unqualified people having jobs. Well, right now, unqualified people do have jobs. They're called men. They have jobs. They're unqualified. Are you mad about this? Are you angry? Does it make you <laughs> furious? No, apparently it doesn't. So I think the issue is not that you don't want unqualified people in jobs. I think the issue is you don't want your advantage taken away, uh, which is a totally different thing. You know, mm. you know. But if your whole philosophy is I don't yes. want my advantage taken away, uh, well, that's not really much of a philosophy. <laughs> You know, right. So, how do you think? You know, what's really interesting to me is about men is like, why is it okay, but to discriminate against women, but it's not okay to discriminate against their daughters? Like, why is it always like, like, do they think their daughters are different? Like, like, why? Like, yeah, you hear that also, where men will say stuff like, um. Uh, I don't discriminate against women. I'm a father of daughters. Uh, I'm like, yeah, you're right. Discrimination all went away as soon as mm-hmm. fathers started having daughters and discrimination. Well, that's, that's ridiculous. That doesn't mean anything. Um, and, and the fact is, is I, I don't think it bothers them as much as they claim it does. You know what, though? It was so interesting that you should even bring that point up. And like you and I were talking about before. So, you know, um, I believe it was like John Adams, you know, so one of the founding fathers, right, which is totally irrelevant to the podcast, but he did not want his daughter to be educated. Like, and Abigail Adams, like, edu- like would educate her and teach her Greek and Latin and stuff like that. And he's like, well, as long as nobody finds out. Like, and I think, like, to a degree, that attitude still kind of goes. I think a lot of men don't even realize that they do it. Like, they're like, especially, and and I've even seen just in the black community, like, you know, when I go to work or whatever, when when I was rising through the corporate ranks, none of my family celebrated it. But my cousin just say like, he, he makes like anything and it's like, oh yeah, you know, good job, you know, whatever. But like, People don't expect the same things that's from their daughters, exactly and they don't even right. support and that's celebrate exactly right. it. Even when that is exactly that is exactly how it. Be. Yeah, and and there is this, and there also is this other sense, you know, on the on the flip side, that women who don't get married somehow have failed in life, which is ridiculous because you know I I, oh, yeah. I now so so in the last few years because I started doing this I started teaching gender economics so I started studying all these things. Uh, Studies are pretty clear on this, that marriage benefits mm. men, does not benefit women. Um, there, was a, there was a great little story done. Um, it, it, was, it was an article, I think, in The Guardian about two or three weeks ago about women. Uh, there's this people dating who are 65 years old, and they're interviewing this guy who's 65 and these women who are in their 60s. And this guy said, I can't get these women. These women will go out with me, but they won't marry me. And I keep asking them to marry me, and they won't do it. And they ask these women, why don't you get remarried? And the women are like, I've already done that. I did that where I took care of a guy. And that was a drag. And why do I want to take care of another guy? Why do I want to do that? What am I getting out of that? Um, And a lot of of men don't think about that. That marriage for women is a huge burden. Um, You know, why should I have a guy in my house that I'm cleaning up after? I can just clean up after myself. I, I, I don't need you. And, right. you know, I think men, Could you know, be. as we go forward in the 21st century, are going to increasingly find that since women can earn money without them now, 
and they don't need them for that anymore. That if you can't bring anything else into the relationship, well, then why have one? What's the point? Uh, and I think right. that's, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a hard yeah. thing for men to understand that, 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 um, that it's, it's not the story they were told uh, that women are looking to get married and marriage is for women. Uh, that's not how that works. It is. And you see a lot of men, especially like online and things like that, especially since we have all these social media platforms, you see a lot of men kind of like throwing their sippy cup around now because of that very fact, because it's like it's forcing them to, to you know, step up you know, and provide a little bit more value <laughs> to the situation, you know, than, than they used to have to, but now, you know, but, and, and it's weird, you know, like, um, as a woman, when you're, when you're accomplished and you're ambitious, it's like you get blamed, you know what I mean? And you get blamed from not only men, but even, you know, sometimes other women who, who chose to settle and things like that. I mean, it's, it's a complicated thing to be a professional woman. And uh, we've gotten into that on the podcast before, but it, I, I don't think people really understand the, the burden sometimes that it takes. It, to it, be it's, there's a lot of pitfalls associated with that. Um, there's a lot of issues in the workplace. Uh, a lot of the gender wage gap um, is, 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 is associated with how we handle the household. Um, and so, yeah, there's all sorts of, mm -hmm. of you know, conversations that need to happen where men need to listen to what's actually going on here uh, because they get told a certain story in the culture about how this is supposed to go. But that culture is based on a paradigm that existed, you know, 50, 60 years ago before women were in the workforce. Uh, and with women in the workforce, um, it's a very right. different story. Um, and, and, you know, one thing to note: women initiate, you know, 65, 70% of all divorces. Um, and it's because, you know, at a certain point, women <laughs> get in these relationships and then they realize this is not working. Um, you know, this is not going to work out for me. It can't be the case that I do a shift at work and then I come home and do a second shift where I take care of this house. And you as a guy just do one shift at work and then you come yeah. home and play video games or watch television or something like that. Um, a household, I, I, I tell my gender econ students, a household is like a firm. Um, it requires a team to take care of it. Uh, you really should sit down before you get married and mm -hmm. think about who exactly is going to be doing different things in this household. Who's going to cook the meals? Who's going to do the shopping? Who's going to do the vacuuming? Who's going to do the laundry? Um, these are all tasks that make up a household and somebody has to do them. And you're far better having an honest conversation about how that's going to happen, because if you don't, um, you're probably going to end up with a pretty unequal split of the workload. And at some point, somebody's going to get very, very pissed off about that. Um, and so, you, you know, but again, as I pointed out to you, you know, we said earlier, did you always think these things? No, I had to read a bunch of stuff before I figured all this out. <laughs> so. So, and, and I can definitely respect that because I think that's one of the big things about growth that people need to really start embracing is that sometimes you need to have a mind shift. Sometimes you don't know what you don't know. And, you know, and it's okay to like 
you know, mentally pivot and start like embracing new things. And, you know, and, and that's why I love to travel and things like that, because you need to see how other people are thinking about stuff, how other people are doing things, how they're perceiving things. You know, it, it's super important if you want to be a well-rounded human being that's just not super. Well, uh, that's the, that's the cool thing about social to... media is that you can essentially <laughs> travel without going, leaving your house. Um, you you can actually, you know, as you and I have met on social media and I, we've met other people. I mean, I live yeah. it, it is the case uh, that you can, you can, you can, if you, and you have to listen, you have to think about what somebody's saying and ask yourself why they're saying that and where, what is that based on? And, and, um, and if you listen, I think you can learn a great deal about how people see the world and, and why they think the way they do. Um, and it's, it's a really, it's, it's, but it does require that you take a step back and, and, and not talk. And that's another thing that men have trouble with is they have trouble not talking. Um, you see that on social media, you'll see that on Twitter where Mm -hmm. two women will start having a conversation and a man will interject. And, you know, you sit there and say, you know, you're better off not talking and letting them talk and trying to learn what they're trying to say. Um, (laughs) I, yeah, it's yeah. Oh my God! Like I mean, mansplaining, and and it's not even just on TV. Exactly. Too. I mean, it's it's in the boardroom. It's everywhere. Like, you think you know? And one of the biggest things when I sit on panels or like I'm talking at a conference or whatever, I encourage women to interrupt men. Like, even though like I know you know that's probably not proper, but like to a degree, like men don't ever shut up. So like, no offense, you can't always sit on the sidelines and expect people to do what they're supposed to do. Um, that's what I was kind of taught from an early age by my dad <laughs> and my grandpa is like, you can't expect people to do what they're supposed to do. And I think like women, you know, need to just start saying, Hey, you know, I'm going to own this stage. I'm going to talk about whatever I'm talking about and you're going to be quiet and listen. Like, and when a dude starts rambling or starts going off subject, bring it back. You know what I mean? Like insert yourself. Like too often times women just kind of like, because, you know, I'm not saying that women are perfect, but a lot of times we do the right thing. And like, and the right thing isn't always the thing that will benefit you. And you can't be mad about it. You know, when, when, when you yeah, don't it, step it, up. It's really hard to, to, to do that because it is the case that men have trouble. Men have trouble shutting up. Um, they, have a, they have a lot of trouble with, you know, maybe you don't have anything to say here. Yeah. Maybe you're not offering anything that's really useful. They, they don't have a lot to say. And, and a lot of times, even when it comes down to even job postings and stuff like that, like a man will uh, apply for a job when he has, I think, 40 percent or 60 percent or something like that of the qualifications where a woman will exactly. only apply when she has 100 percent of the qualifications. So, you know, what I, mean? I think that like, you know, as we kind of grow and evolve and if we're going to really be able to compete in this economy, like what we really need to do is we need to kind of have a little bit more audacity. Um, well, you know, and, and, than, you know, the, the other side of that is, you know, people have, say that you know, well, women um, just need to take more risk or something like that. Well, the fact of the matter is, though, when you take risks or you speak up, you get a different reaction when I do exactly the same thing. And that makes it a lot harder for women to step up because, you know, going back to, you know, going back to the issue of inequality and thinking about what your career actually means. um, As a man, um, it never occurred to me when I was starting out in my career that I wasn't qualified 
to write about things or that I shouldn't write a book. Or maybe when the New York Times asks you to start writing, maybe you're not qualified to do that. Maybe you shouldn't be doing that. Maybe you don't know anything. Um, and if I had been living in a world where many women right. find themselves in, where everything they do, they get questioned. Everything they do, somebody asks them, are you sure about that? Are you sure you're qualified? Are you sure you're doing the right thing? I would think that I would start turning down opportunities because, look, people don't think I can do it. And they keep telling me I can't do it. You know, I mean, as a woman and as a black woman, I get that a lot. And I mean, and I think and, and you and I have talked about that before. When people meet me, the first thing they ask me, oh, so are you a lawyer? Yes. Oh, like, you know, always trying to look to validate or invalidate what you're doing. But the thing about it is and, and I 100 percent agree. And, and that's where sometimes we and I think that's why it's super important for women's voices out here to tell each other, push, push, push. Because the more women that go silent, like you said, when they start second guessing themselves, the, the more exactly. people think that's, that that's, that's an that's okay way shift. to It's really hard to do that because, you know, it is, right. you know, it is a case. I, I, you know, I wonder about that in terms of what I've accomplished is that, um, on the one hand, it seems like I've accomplished quite a few things. On the other hand, you know, I'm a tall white male. I mean, I'm in a I'm in a group of people that typically gets things handed to them. Uh, when I step into a classroom and I start teaching, yeah. there is a presumption from the students that I know what I'm talking about because fact of the matter is I'm bigger than they are. Um, and you know, I've had women tell me, uh, you yeah. know, when I go into the classroom, I got to prep for you know hours to be ready to do that, and I tell them. I just show up. I just show up and wow. start talking. And they're like, well, how do you get away with that? Because there is nobody's ever going to question yeah. me. You know, and if they do question me, I just look at them and go, really? You're gonna, seriously? Yeah. You're going you're to go there, huh? Wow. Um, and I can do that. I get away with that. And then, so then that leads us to the question, well, then if that's, if you're being treated differently, everybody else is, well, then exactly what are you accomplishing here? The game's being rigged in your favor. You know, and, and would I have written as many papers or done mm -hmm. as many things I did if the game was set up differently where, hey, before you go into any of these classrooms, you're going to have to do all this type of work beforehand and you're going to have to prove yourself to all these different people before you, we let you do that. Well, then I'm not going to be able to write as many papers. I'm going to be doing that instead. Mm -hmm. and, that's the question, you know, and then people are, well, then how do I know that you, mm -hmm. you know, how do I know what success is you and how much is success due to the game? game was rigged in your favor. I don't know. Um, and again, I think men would be, you'd be better off in a world where, hey, we're going to treat everybody the same, really. Um, you know, and we don't have these cultural biases because um, then at least you would know when you accomplish something, hey, that was something that you did and it wasn't because the game was rigged for you. So do you think, um, you know, like you said, and, and even when it comes down to um, even when it comes down to racial equity and things like that, it's really important to get, you know, white people, if you're going to be talking about, you know, uh, racial equity, um, you need to get men on your side. But do you think that bias training um, is helpful to people? It's helpful if the person doing it takes it seriously. The problem is you can't make them take it seriously. And you, mm -hmm. I mean, again, going back to my story, I mean, I, I, I started talking yeah. about gender issues because I, I went 
on social media and I was listening to what women were saying. They were essentially giving me a diversity class that I was willing to take. Um, but I had to be willing to take it, right? I had to be willing to listen. If you're not going to listen, and I can't make you listen. Yeah. I can make you sit in the classroom and I can make you take a quiz. I can make you do these things. But if you take it seriously and you don't really think about what somebody's telling mm-hmm. you, um, then it's not going to make any difference in the slightest because, you know, your attitude's not going to be any different. Um, and it's really hard to get people to change. That This is one of the things I've said. I've said this on Twitter. Um, I think a class on gender studies should be required for undergraduates, because if you can get somebody when they're 18 or 19 years old to sit down and listen in a classroom, uh, I think you have far more impact than waiting till somebody's 45 years old and right. make them go through, you know, a course where they're not very committed to it and they're not really interested. And you're asking the change tremendously how they see the world. Um, and I, I, I just don't think that's very useful. I think we'd be much better off. We said, you know, forget right. diversity training at the firm level. Let's do diversity training at the college level when you're sitting as a freshman or a sophomore in class. Take a gender studies class. Take a class on race relations. To, you know, understand the history of what's going on here. Um, I, I've, I've had, I've had, I think a lot of success in my gender economics class, teaching people who probably hadn't thought a lot about these things, um, to get them to think about how the world works and think about, you know, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're a guy who grew up in this culture. Now think about it from a woman's perspective, how they're seeing the world and start thinking about women as people who have experiences, um, mm-hmm. that you should be able to relate to. Uh, and, 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 you know, and, and it, it I, I think a lot, a lot of men have left that class going, I didn't, you know, I didn't know that. I didn't understand that about my girlfriend or my wife, that this is what she was seeing. Um, you know, I, I had one guy tell me, uh, you know, after he took my gender recon class, he goes, this is like the best mm-hmm. marriage therapy I ever had. <laughs> you know, cause he, he was forced to think about, you know, what his wife was telling him <laughs> and he hadn't done that before. Uh, and it made a big difference on them. And, and I, I think that's yeah. where it begins. I think you have to get people when they're young. I, I, you know, and I, I would argue also it would benefit us a lot if we even started before they got to college. Go back into elementary school or go back into high school. I think we do a huge disservice to boys when we are telling little boys, don't play with girls. Girls are ucky. You know, that is – I don't think you can I, – I think mm. if you in your culture are telling little boys yeah. to avoid girls – and then when they start dating, now say, now go date girls. I, I'm sorry, that is not going to work out. You can't tell someone to avoid somebody for 10 years and then tell somebody, now go date them. Well, how do you expect yeah. that's going to work out? And we end up in these huge that we have where men can't relate to women in relationships because exactly. they've never had an experience having a relationship with a woman where they're just friends with them and they just talk to them. Um, and if you don't have that, well, then you don't really have much of a relationship. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. I mean, it's, I mean, the hour just kind of flew by. Um, I don't hope this is like been so mind blowing. And I think that it's, it will definitely be something that a lot of men start to really think about, you know, because, you know, from your perspective, you're not sitting there just like bashing men or anything like that. You're just saying, hey, human to human. Like, you know, start looking at this as you're dealing with human interaction, 
And I think a lot of people um, need to be a little bit more aware of that. So I definitely appreciate you stopping oh, by. I'm on, I'm on where Twitter. is um, uh, where so can people wages reach of you? Wins like, is what um, I, is like my how Twitter do they get in touch? Um, so that's my main place that I am. I am generally at. I'm on Twitter a lot, as you know. Yeah, well, Twitter's fun. Twitter's great. I like Twitter. Um, Me too. <laughs> well, Twitter's amazing. It I'm really a is a really amazing lights, program. Which is weird. <laughs> I mean, you get introduced to people all over the world, um, and you find out people who have common yeah. interests to you, and, and it's really a great place to talk about things. And and also, you get a inter- you get introduced to events as they happen uh, much more quickly than elsewhere. Um, so you know, so Twitter, yeah, wages and wins where I'm at on Twitter. All right. All right. Perfect. Well, David Berry, a sports economist, uh, Southern Utah University, um, one of the top sports economists. I'm so glad that you stopped by um, to even talk to us about this. Um, I'll probably have him on again, um, probably in the next year. Um, You got some exciting stuff. But um, as far as that is concerned, we will see you next time on this Not Just a Game podcast. Thanks. (laughs) 